from the Sri Bhakti Siddhanta Vaibhav about the life of and teachings of Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And I'm on chapter six of the first volume. This section is called Transcendental Moral Morality. From the beginning of his life, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati was known and respected for his high moral character, which was considered the minimal qualification of a gentleman, what to speak of a sadhu. At that time, traditional morality, or the generic dharma described in Shastra, was becoming increasingly fused with the atheistic utilitarian ideal that the ethical value of conduct is determined by its results. Actions were deemed virtuous if they tended to produce the greatest wheel, that's W-E-A-L, for the largest number of people. But Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati was not constrained by worldly moralism, whether traditional, mundanely religious, or newfangled. He taught that real morality means acting for Krishna's pleasure, which alone constitutes the supreme good, because morals devoid of Shuddha Bhakti are but eudaimonistic social norms. Hold on. Eudaimonism, a system of ethics that bases moral value on the likelihood that good actions will produce happiness. Comes from Greek, as you might expect, which comes, it comes from the word eudaimonimos, system of happiness, from eudaimon, happy. Yud, well, plus daimon, guardian spirit. The tra this transcendental outlook on morality, quite different from that of the mundane, was explained in Professor Sanyal's Sri Krishna Chaitanya Chapter 19. Too rigid empiric morality obstructs spiritual awakening more effectively than even confirmed immorality. This is due to want of humility and spirit of submission to the sadhu that is sure to be engendered more or less by the dogmatic professor of conventional morality. True morality is never possible prior to spiritual awakening. That which passes as morality in the society of worldling, worldlings is only a hypocritical and therefore more dangerous form of immorality. The moral instinct proper, which belongs to the soul, must not be confounded with this hypocritical immorality and its conventions. It is not possible for a person to be really and fully moral before he realizes the nature of his true self. It is not, of course, intended to undervalue the principle of morality in any way. That instinct in its pure form, as in the case of every other instinct, belongs to the soul. The form in which it passes currently in the world is only the perverted reflection of the real principle and is not conducive to spiritual life. Its apparent advantages are strictly confined 
to this perverted existence. Whatever tends to reconcile us to the worldly life stands self-condemned for that very reason. Empiric morality is fully open to this charge of pandering to the unspiritual life. As a matter of fact, neither conventional morality nor conventional immorality are praised by the sadhus. As by themselves, they stand without any relation to the truth. Let's have just uh, some discussion about that for a moment. If we can bring in some Shastra to give context to these points. One of the points is that we can discuss that the sole objective of one's activities should be to please the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, can you back it up by Shastra or explain logically why it's a valid proposition? The goal of one's works should be to satisfy the senses of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Please d defend this statement with Shastra and logic. On your mark, get set, go. Yes, please. Everything belongs. Everything belongs to Supreme Personality of Godhead. Nothing belongs to us. Therefore, uh, everything should be used, utilized in the service to the Supreme Personality of Godhead for satisfaction of his senses, not ours, because we are just servants of the servants of the servants, dasa dasa no dasa. And uh, all the yagyas and uh, whatever done in this material world actually intended to satisfy the senses of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. As in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna himself, he says, Bhaktaram yagya tapasam sarvalokam heshwaram those persons who realize that whatever yagya, whatever sacrifices, uh, resu results of that sacrifices belongs to the Supreme Personality of God for his satisfaction. So he attains a peace, peace of mind. And, uh, this is the most valuable thing in this world, peace of mind. So. Uh, Actually, uh, human life is intended only for one purpose, to understand that the Supreme Personality of Godhead, uh, his master, and we are servants, and whatever we have, everything, even our life, our body, belongs to him, and everything can be utilized only in his service. Then we will be happy and peaceful. Thank you. Excellent points. Someone please give, she gave Bhaktaram Dhyakatapasam, somebody give some more Shastra to support the things that she said. Mukharvinda, go ahead. If you don't do the uh, sacrifice for the higher purpose, then it will bind you in this material world. And also he says that even Prabhupada Dham Chakram, like the, all this sacrifice, the cycle of sacrifice is said by, by Krishna himself so that 
it is properly utilized so that that versus corroborate um, nice citations that the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter Krishna is describing the wheel of sacrifice and that's if somebody doesn't perform sacrifice then that person's a, a debtor we're already debtors but if we don't contribute back towards those who are giving it to us then we also are transgressors and there's a reaction for that on the positive side that along with the creation of the material world there were yagyas meant so that we could be completely live in harmony with the laws of nature and, and live abundantly how about the points about how Krishna owns everything yes that everything animate or inanimate belongs to the Supreme Personality of Godhead and uh, one must take only uh, that part which is allotted to him <coughs> so this in itself proves that uh, it, everything is if someone has something it is only allotted to him for some time until he, he has this body and uh, when he dies it, it, it will pass on to someone else and Srila Prabhupada also uh, gives this example that uh, everyone directly or indirectly is serving someone else even the president of a country is serving the or at least he promises to serve the uh, people citizens, citizens. and uh, so uh, and in the Chaitanya Chaitanya says Jivira Sarupa Krishna Nityadas so th from this we can see that uh, the nature of the living soul is to serve someone but when we serve anyone in the material world we will, uh, anyone will not be happy only when he serves the Supreme Personality of Godhead then he will be happy because uh, Krishna is uh, Rishikesh So Krishna's Rishikesh, how, do, how does that help? He is the master of the sense the, These are uh, uh, excellent points you can serve people in the material world or individually and they won't be satisfied ultimately but how is it that when we serve Krishna then everybody else becomes satisfied if that's the point yes He, 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 is, he will never forget 
ourselves, how small we it be. He will uh, forever, it is, uh, uh, goes to our account, spiritual account, and it will be kept there. And Krishna will never forget about that. But if you are serving to somebody here in the material world, so until uh, you are working to him, you are serving to him, he will pay to you. But as soon as you are not able to serve to him due to disease or old age or whatever, so then uh, he doesn't need you anymore. He will take somebody else, younger and younger <laughs> than you. So Krishna is a very uh, grateful person. That's why he's, he's worthy to uh, worship and serve to him directly. Prabhupada gave an example of uh, an elderly woman who wanted to serve in the Krishna consciousness movement. Her name was Mrs. Sharma. And her family objected that you shouldn't go and give yourself to this uh, service just to Krishna all the time. And Prabhupada pointed out that she had served them faithfully her whole life and now she was elderly and she wanted to do devotional service full time. But her family wasn't satisfied. They wanted more service. And he quoted the verse in which the devotee is saying that I've served the bad masters of my senses for unlimited lifetimes and they've never given me time off and they never gave me mercy. And I never questioned them <coughs> as bad masters, but now I'm changing my mind. And similarly to the point about serving Krishna and serving others, to serve others by serving Krishna, I just heard Prabhupada this morning speaking of, about the verse, Yata, Torumula Nashechanena, which describes how if you water the root of a tree, then it waters and nourishes all the leaves and branches automatically, he said, but there's more. He said also, when you eat food, you put it in the mouth, and then it becomes distributed to the rest of the body. And then Prabhupada took it a step further and he said, so what if you tried to put food in your ears or your eyes or your nose? Because he said, as playing the opposite role, somebody might say, well, I mean, that's okay to put food in the mouth. He said, but there's nothing wrong with serving others. So Prabhupada said then, is there anything wrong with putting food in the different other holes on the body? He said then, you'll become blind actually by putting food in your eyes with the speak of your ears and your nose and so forth. And therefore there's, there's a protocol for eating and similarly, Yagya means to serve Krishna. And if you serve Krishna, then the parts and parcels, as you were pointing out, also become satisfied. They're part of Krishna. So this is a, not a well-known idea. I personally find that as soon as we talk about spiritual service in a, a group of people who are not oriented towards this philosophy, of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, that one of the first things that people come up with is, 
is yes, let's, uh, let's feed poor people because that's really real service. They might think that, you know, I should, I should be taking care of the poor. Uh, but Srila uh, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur would point out that, or actually, this was on the, the same lecture that Prabhupada was giving about serving the, feeding, uh, putting food in the mouth to feed the rest of the body. And, um, and he pointed out that if you try to feed people, then you'll, you may fall short in doing that. You will fall short. But he said it, it's automatically done in Krishna consciousness. And then he went on to say that all over India there are temples and they give out prasadam to everybody. Every, anybody who comes, they feed them. He was giving this example of the all-inclusiveness of Krishna consciousness, that if, if you take to Krishna consciousness, then you're auto, you will automatically feed people, but he meant it literally also. And then he went on to say that each one of our uh, communities should feed people, that, and not just poor people. Then he said, actually, everybody's poor. It's not just that people who don't have money or they're homeless are poor. He said even rich people are poor because they don't know about Krishna consciousness. We find oftentimes that there are people that don't have possessions and they feel satisfied enough, whereas uh, people that have more than enough feel dissatisfied. That people who don't have possessions can't feel dissatisfied. Everybody feels dissatisfied uh, when they don't have a sense of Christian consciousness. But as I pointed out the other night, poor people at least have the hope that someday they'll become rich and happy. False hope. Whereas rich people don't have that because they already got everything and then they feel especially uh, violated by the world because even after getting everything that supposedly gives happiness, they still feel dissatisfied. Therefore, the most important service that one can do is to bring people to knowledge and to connect them to Krishna. And by serving Krishna, then naturally we serve other living beings in the best possible way. I'm going to read a couple more um, sentences or uh, just a couple more paragraphs in this section, okay? Okay, here we go. As soon as our conduct gets related to the truth, it assumes its natural state, which has nothing to do with either the conventional moral or immoral principle of this world. To call the spiritual conduct as merely moral in the ordinary conventional sense of the word would, therefore, be wholly misleading. The spiritual conduct is no doubt perfectly wholesome, being free from all affinity with the unwholesome things of this world. The so-called moral conduct based on worldly experience owes all its value to its worldly utility. This fact categorically differentiates spiritual, quote-unquote, purity from worldly morality. There is, of course, no possibility of immoral conduct on the spiritual plane. In the absence of all possibility of immorality, 
There is no scope for worldly morality in the realm of the absolute. The kingdom of Godhead accommodates all varieties of conduct by endowing all of them with perfect wholesomeness. Can such conduct be appropriately called moral in the conventional sense of the term? It is possible for the ethical mind to conceive of a state of existence that is infinitely higher than any conceivable... Uh, that's a question. Is it possible for the ethical mind to conceive of a state of existence that is infinitely higher than any conceivable worldly moral excellence? Lacking of understanding of such subtle ethics gave rise to the frequent accusation that Krishna himself was immoral, especially in his dealings with the gopis. This topic, which unenlightened moralists could not but mistake as being improper, was definitively explained in the Erotic Principle and Unalloyed Devotion, a harmonist article by Professor Sanyal, in terms of the transcendental morality of recognizing Krishna as the superlative enjoyer. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati encapsulated this issue well on Vraj Mandal Parikram. And here's how he uh, spoke about it. By confiscating the clothes of the gopis, Krishna obtained happiness. That is Krishna's sense gratification. I cannot object. Let us see Krishna display sense control in his own conduct. Why is he a sense enjoyer? Krishna will not become a slave to my whims. If he so wills, supremely independent Krishna can demonstrate sense restraint as he did in his form of Gaurasundar. But that, by that example, he informs us that Krishna's devotees do not have the right to steal gopis' clothing. Only Krishna has that prerogative. Our duty is to act at our level of eligibility, accepting everything conducive for Krishna's service, and thus attempting to assist him in his enjoyment with his devotees." Unquote. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati shocked the challenging professor Albert E. Southers of Ohio State, Ohio State University by upholding the Gaudiya conception of morality as superior to that of Christianity. The flabbergasted professor inquired, how can your holiness's statements be reconciled with the descriptions of Krishna's amorous sports? Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, Krishna's loving affairs are not temporal like the lustful romances of dramatic heroes and heroines such as Romeo and Juliet, or even of ideal spouses. Lust as prevalent in this world is merely a mental passion whereas the lust of the transcendental world has its own form. Here lust is always goaded by the enemy, one of the six passions, whereas in the transcendental region of Krishna, the loveliness of his spiritual body ever drives the lust for Krishna, which takes form as sublimated love or the desire to gratify the immaculate senses of Krishna. Krishna's amorous sports are not to be called indecency because Krishna is the only one unrivaled, the only one unrivaled enjoyer, embodiment of real truth and spiritual despot. Professor Southers, I cannot fully appreciate this. Please let me understand it a little more clearly. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, 
Suppose there are some angles, two right angles, four right angles, and so forth. There is the contracted character of a corner in the acute obtuse and right angle. But in the two right angles called the straight angle, even though called an angle, there is no contractedness or want of straightness, as with angles in general. Such is the case with the autocrat Krishna. There is no want of contractedness or straightness or despicable character or indecorousness in the perfect entity Krishna, like the perfect circle of 360 degrees, though the communities of enjoyers or renouncers championing, championing, championing morality or immorality may, due to the meagerness of their intellect, wrongly regard the lustfulness of Krishna, the quality of that despotism, that his is right alone as vulgar, like that of common men and other creatures. Were you able to, was my reading sufficient enough for you to pick up what he said? Yeah. That's what I was asking. Does anybody want to paraphrase any part of that? I think it'll help if anybody brings. Close of the gopis. So only Krishna can do this. He has the right to do this. Right. Because these gopis belongs to him. And then he brought up the point that in his form of Gorasundar, that's also Krishna, but he's perfectly sense controlled. So someone says, Why is Krishna not sense controlled? Well, first of all, the as you brought up Chakadola, he's Hrishikesh. Was that you? Hrishikesh, someone said. So Hrishikesh means he's the master of the senses. And so the senses are meant to serve the master of the senses. But in the case of uh, <laughs> Gorasundar, he shows his supreme opulence by complete sense control and showing that the devotee because he's, he's coming as the acharya to teach how to be a devotee, is completely sense-controlled because the senses are engaged in a higher matter. That means uh, in, in a higher taste. Any other points? Okay, I'll read just a couple more points because this conversation is still going on. <clears throat> Elsewhere, Srila Saraswati Thakur declared, being perfected and increased millions of times, the topmost morality propagated by Mahatma Jesus Christ is anxiously waiting to serve the morality of love of Godhead as cultivated by Vaishnavas. Genuine devotees of Krishna are never inclined towards immorality. All desirable ethics are totally pledged to the lotus feet of Sri Krishna, the very form of dharma. 
The highest ethical principle and science for the jiva is attachment to the Supreme Lord, the ultimate limit of which is found only in devotees of Krishna. Equally controversial was the practical application of this transcendental approach to morality. Even devotees of Krishna who were endeavoring to establish the highest principles sometimes felt constrained to adjust to the ways of a wicked and unbenign world. Hence the Gaudiya Math members, especially those involved in management, had to be sufficiently worldly wise to deal with cheats, liars, ruffians, and other such less savory characters whose paths they inevi inevitably crossed. In everyday dealings, Gaudiya Math members experience that what is required to serve Krishna sometimes contradicts the course of ordinary, ordinary righteousness. While understandable, that to achieve anything in this world, especially in the modern age of duplicity and hypocrisy, one is occasionally obliged to contravene the principles of standard morality. Such apparent ethical departures by sadhus tended to arouse the ire of hypocritical prigs. When a grahasta disciple who was visiting him during a tour requested permission to leave, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati suggested that he remain longer. But the disciple replied that he had to return to his hometown to attend his office. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati proposed that he simply submit a report of sickness and stay. <laughs> a local lawyer who was present strongly remonstrated, You are a sadhu, priding yourself on representing the truth, and this is how you teach your disciples to tell lies? The lawyer stormed out, whereupon becoming inconsolably disturbed, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati completely desisted from speaking with anyone and from eating. That evening, Bhakti Saranga Prabhu returned to find the whole camp plunged in gloom. He had been outside, busy in collection and organizational matters, but now learning of the exigency, he asked for the lawyer's address and said, Give me the car barging into the lawyer's residence. As soon as the door was opened, Bhakti Saranga Prabhu immediately took up the issue. Imagine if you saw robbers approaching your house and your wife was heavily or ornamented. Naturally, you would hide her. If after looting whatever valuables they could find, the crooks asked if there was anything more, would you bring out your wife? The lawyer had to admit no. Bhakti Saranga Prabhu proceeded to explain that in the same way the need of a conditioned soul to hear from and associate with a pure devotee is so overwhelming that it must be had at any cost, notwithstanding minor infringements of so social niceties. The lawyer got the point. He then rode back with Bhakti Saranga Prabhu to Sri Srila Saraswati Thakur. At a bazaar along the way, he purchased a basket of fruit. On arriving at Srila Saraswati Thakur's presence, he profusely apologized for his indiscretion and presented the fruit, which Srila Saraswati Thakur graciously accepted. Such departures from ordinary morality were happily seized upon by niggling prudes who were ever alert to find even a reflection of fault in sadhus and on that basis reject everything that saintly persons stood for. But Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati averred 
that sadhus are dhoksajavadis, whereas those who criticize them are akshajavadis, those who see through worldly vision or empiricist. In a lecture, he cited several examples of devotees acting against standard codes of proper behavior. <clears throat> when Krishna appeared as the child of Vasudev, Vasudev misled Kamsa by pretending that Devaki had given birth to a female, female child. Vasudev was duplicitous for the sake of Krishna. While performing kirtan in Srivas Thakur's house one evening, Lord Chaitanya told Srivas, Today I do not feel ecstasy and chanting. Is someone hiding here? Srivas then found his mother-in-law crouching behind a basket, whereupon he grabbed her by the hair and threw her outside. <laughs> Similarly, Srivas once allowed an austere brahmachari to hide in his house to see Lord Chaitanya's dancing. When Lord Chaitanya asked if any unknown person was present, Srivas answered, yes, a pure brahmachari who subsisted only on milk. But Lord Chaitanya told Srivas, drive him away. Merely by drinking milk, one does not qualify to attain me. He explained that worldly moralizers who might consider Vasudeva a liar and Lord Chaitanya and his followers fanatical, sectarian and intolerant can never understand the minds of the Lord and his devotees. On another occasion, on another occasion, there is no dharma at all in subjects enjoyed by the masses. Whatever ethics or morality exist within the universe and whatever external dharma is present are not pure truth. All dharma, all truth is situated at Mahaprabhu's lotus feet. On hearing this, people may say that I am crazy, but I don't mind. Let them say that I have given up the correct path and gone in the opposite direction. I will continue on the opposite path. During Srila Saraswati Thakur's visit to Dhaka in April 1935, a group of scholars came to hear from him, and one of them, the Sanskrit professor Sri Yukta Abhay Chandra, M.A., opened the conversation by stating that as a result of modern education, today's students were becoming misbehaved, vulgar, and immoral, and thus it was not possible to speak to them about devotion to God which they snorted as if it were a laughing matter. Yet without first giving religious instruction, moral standards could not be established. In reply, Srila Saraswati Thakur spoke at length to establish that the proper process is not to first become moral, then take to bhakti. For genuine morality is a byproduct of bhakti, and that morality professed as a principle independent of bhakti is actually godlessness, as is the conception of religion being a practice meant primarily to uphold morality. Continuing, he retold an instance from his student life, how in a lecture about the necessity of dharma, the principal of the Sanskrit college stated that even without consideration of any god, it is possible to lead a moral life. And then he, Siddhanta Saraswati, later privately protested to the principle that godless morality could only be opportunism or materialism and thus could benefit neither the individual nor society at large. He cited Black's Self-Culture, a prescribed book at the college that compared godless or humanistic morality to living in a kingdom without recognizing 
the authority of the king. Well, establishing that Shuddha Bhakti was far above and of a wholly different nature than ordinarily, ordinary worldly morality, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati strongly contested pseudo-devotees taking Vaishnava Dharma as an excuse for eschewing conventional moral fidelity. He stated, the character of persons engaged in spiritual life is never devoid of morals. Individuals opposed to morality and those fallen from morality are never fit to be called spiritualists. Licentiousness can never be bhakti. Yes. Monkeys. Where are the monkeys? Are they already took one. They took a shoe? They threw it back. They threw it back. What? They threw, threw, it back. threw it down. Yes. And still but we have here enough for them to choose, right? <laughs> so if you like, you just put them on the inside. Yesterday, a monkey took a kinchin of Krishna's shoe and put it on the roof. We can see the shoe, but it's impossible to access. It's, it, it's one of the little ones. The little monkey? Yeah, it's one of the kids. Okay. Well, that's no excuse. They should have told him at home about these things. I mean, do we blame him or the parents? Sorry to hate the No, I... It's a, it's a real travesty when somebody takes your shoes. The monkey. Mother Nirukla warned, I, you know, to take care of the glass. Yeah. And I was just completely talking with my friend while he coming, they actually took it. They took your glasses? <laughs> we got it back. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Inconvenience is regretted. We'll have to issue a fatwa. <laughs> we'll make a holy war. <laughs> okay, Mukharavinda. Uh, amazing, like, uh, I, I was correlating with that verse from Bhagavatam there. Um, Yashyasti Bhakti Bhagavati Akinchana Sarvari Kude Statra Samasati Sura Harao so, now this like in the context and Bhakti Sanskrit have explained that verse makes so much sense where he says like uh, without Bhakti whatever uh, qualities you have is like useless it's like you're in the more in the mundane mental platform that's what uh, Bhakti Sanskrit was pointing in the many of this uh, in his explanation it's mostly mental or atheism or, or godless, uh, all the morality, but but the actual uh, that verse says that when when you have bhakti, then you develop all the great qualities. So yes. Um, Prabhu? I, was, I wanted to paraphrase some of the uh, things Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati said, like, you know, he added just because professors are on the other side, geometry concepts of, uh, you know, convergence, divergence, and, uh, you know, the world, you know, moves into what is morality, morality, to a particular context of how, 
you know, whether lines are converging and all. And, and Krishna is free to choose anything. And uh, the way uh, 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 Saraswati Thakur mentioned about, you know, even if there are two right angles, four right angles, you know, they need not, you know, converge. They are just touching, interacting. So, you know, the way he presented all the geometrical concepts of a circle with radius, it was amazing to connect at that level. And uh, as 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 uh, Mahaprabhu came, you mentioned, uh, you know, as a full restraint away from, uh, you know, and then there is uh, the desire of Krishna, which, you know, it, it was how Krishna's, uh, you know, uh, leelas happened. So, uh, we are not here, and even I was very fascinated by when Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati said that even if people think about as crazy and all, like the conviction of what doesn't seem right in the eyes of morality for the social customs, it's above uh, this. And then it is implicit that the morality comes as part of spirituality. It's just the, the color of the class which people are wearing, and it may not be apparent to begin with. But when such, when people go in deeper, they will realize that the the and there is nothing wrong in the whatever things Krishna or Gaurav Mahaprabhu has done. Yes, and there's a, there's this juxtaposition always in the material world because of the the dual existence everyone's living, and that is that we're spiritual beings with with a material body. We find that when Shukadeva Goswami is speaking to Prikshit Maharaj, uh, this is speaking Bhagavatam, that they notice that there are people in the audience who are also listening who were disparaging in their minds the description of the rasa dance. And therefore, Prikshit Maharaj posed questions to Shukadeva Goswami so that, that that could be clarified. And he, in part, clarified it, it meaning the rasa dance and the supposed immorality, by describing how Krishna is the source of all energies. And he gave an example of a child playing with its own shadow. And that is, uh, of course, not immoral. It's his shadow to play with. So similarly, the various uh, forms of devotees and gopis and so forth that are that Krishna interacts with are all his energies, and that higher perspective is is needed in order to understand uh, what uh, uh, real morality is, or that um, to see the higher level of of interaction that that Krishna has with all of his energies, and, and certainly with his devotees. Yes, Prabhu. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Prabhu, I also think that the bar of morality keeps changing with time, uh, because like, an example, like, you know, we are seeing in India, like, uh, maybe 30 years back or something, like, alcohol was a taboo, and you know, now it is, there's more acceptance towards that. More acceptance when you come in the Delhi airport. You have to go through the duty-free shop. I was just noticing that, that they force you to walk through there when you come through immigration. 
<laughs> and then I was noticing what is it that's there. There's alcohol, cigarettes, mm -hmm. perfume, and chocolates. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> what? On the way out also. And the way out also. You have to you have to go through it. And I was I was thinking about the culture of Krishna consciousness that was prevalent in India at some point and how there's this struggle between the lower instincts of a human being that are induced by the lower modes of nature <clears throat> and the, uh, the actual culture in which, uh, for instance, what I was thinking actually as I was walking through that duty-free was that this is first first thought was this is not a very good representation of India. I mean, for people coming, maybe thinking, I'll find something special here, uh, deeper. And then they come in and the, here's your introduction. Uh, it's imitationism. It's like, let's try to keep up with the West type of thing. Then I was thinking, what if when people got off the plane in Delhi and they walked through the, the customs and then the, the next thing they walked through was a theistic exhibition wow. that was world-class. Spend at least as much, if not more money, in creating it as you do on the duty-free uh, displays, which is you know, quite an endeavor to build all that stuff. But what if there was a world-class presentation of the history of India and, and, for instance, even just on a basic level of the culture, the Sanskrit language being the most refined language in the world in the origin of other languages and the history of in India showing how uh, the culture was so uh, advanced that of course the cipher came from India uh, allowing all the other types of mathematics to evolve and there were there there's geometry that came from the culture of doing yagya where the yagyakuns that you build have to be geometrically correct in order to work as portals to the higher worlds. They were actually kind of like smartphone technology back then from the various Vedas. There are exact descriptions of, so they had to make it exact just as nowadays um, electrical engineers have to make sure, for instance, when they're making memory chips, it has to talk about right angles. It has to perfectly fit. If it's off by a, a, a micron, then it leaks information. And you, you can create all these chips and it, they'll lose it. So similarly, in the culture of India, I'm getting a little detailed here, but the fact is there could be like an amazing presentation about the culture of India when you walk in or the spiritual culture of India, what would that be like for people coming into the country? But they, they've lost their bearings, as do most people, by exposure to the lower modes of nature. Yes? Uh, I want to, a little bit to speak about the lilas of Krishna with gopis. Actually, uh, it was... Uh, these gopis, unnerved gopis, uh, the young, 15, 16 years old, but they actually uh, sadhus of Dandakaranya, 
who were attracted by the beauty of Lord Ramachandra and Lakshman who were crossing through the jungle. Both Dandakarani where these sadhus were meditating. And they were so much attracted to Lord Ramachandra. And he said that uh, this, uh, in this expression I cannot uh, satisfy your senses. But later I will come as a Krishna in Vrindavan. So then I will satisfy all of you. So all these uh, uh, sadhus, self-realized souls, they came as uh, gopis, in the bodies of, of gopis. To, uh, they are like, uh, Krishna was as a magnet who attracted all these gopis. And actually, uh, just my brother, Satchitananda Prabhu, if you know him, the famous artist of Iskon. He has few uh, museums in France, Italy, uh, Belgium, mostly in Belgium and in America. And just now he's uh, completing the very, very big painting uh, about Krishna. He stole the clothing of uh, unmarried copies of Vrindana. This is amazing. I brought uh, so many disciples of Srila Prabhupada just to see this. Because the uh, uh, paintings is already complete and very soon we go to Belgium. And uh, that's why I, I want to invite all of you, not so far, uh, opposite to Russian building. So if you have time tomorrow, you can go there and just see the paintings. It's amazing. Uh, day by day, I'm going there very uh, often. And day by day, I'm seeing how the painting becomes more and more rich in details. Krishna changes, changes his faces. Uh, and uh, you see, when I'm seeing these gopis, they're completely naked, they have nothing. But they have no the sense of, uh, how to say in English? Shyness. From the uh, ordinary point of view, this immoral, the young girl, never touched by men, and then she's, she can appear completely naked from the water of Jamuna in front of Krishna. Actually, they but felt they, shy yeah. at that time. But, uh, they did feel shy, but, uh, and, and at the same time, they were so attracted to Krishna, and they were aware of the fact that somebody else could come along at any time, and then they would lose their opportunity to actually be married to Krishna by dint of um, them approaching him, uh, him in, that, in that way. Uh, so it, they, they overcame any kind of sense of shyness because their desire to be married to Krishna was so strong. But I want to bring out a, a couple other points related to what you said that Prabhupada points out frequently about how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was uh, very careful about interaction with women as a sannyasi, but uh, as in the Chaitanya Manjusha says, Arajya Bhagavan Vrajeshatanayastha Dhamma Vrindavana Ramya Kachirupasana Vraja Vidu Vargena Bhokopita, that the highest method, he said, of worshiping Krishna was that conceived by the gopis. And in a similar way, in the song, Radhe Jaya Jaya Madhava Daite, 
uh, you know, talking about the, the, the gopis and Radharani and, and Vrindavan. These are written, um, he talks about uh, Sanat Kumar and the, uh, the these eternal brahmacharis who are, who are appreciating this because um, they're beyond the, you know, the idea of uh, interaction uh, between male and female, but this is a proof of the transcendental nature of the uh, residents of Vrindavan and Krishna's interaction with them. Gaur Premanande Hari Hari Bo.